Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, covering disinformation and politics. So the story about news and disinformation and how it affects elections likely will end up being the sort of biggest journalism story of the next year, if it already hasn't been of the last year. We at CJR have devoted a lot of attention to this. Our latest print issue, which is just out, is devoted entirely to this. And this week at the Columbia Journalism School, we held a day-long conference to talk about what disinformation means for journalism, whether facts still matter, and if they do, what does that look like? The keynote conversation of the whole day was a chat that I had with Carol Cadwalder. Carol is the reporter for the Observer newspaper and the Guardian newspaper in the UK, who really, with the New York Times, broke the Cambridge Analytica story and has thought a lot about what the effect of disinformation on journalism is. It was a great time to have this conversation because we were talking a couple of days before the British election, which we now know the result of. But one thing that's important to keep in mind is, as you listen to this conversation that Carol and I had, is this idea that what happened in the UK in the run-up to the Brexit vote and in the run-up to the general election is just a precursor to what we're going to be dealing with in the US in the presidential election that starts now and will run through next year. So this week on The Kicker, my conversation with Carol Cadwalder at Columbia earlier this week. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Um, Thanks very much for having me. It's particularly great of you to be here considering I actually saw on Twitter that you're like in the middle of reporting what's going on in Britain as you sit here in New York. It's great because the election is two days away. What have you made of the disinformation efforts? It seems it seems right to just start there um, around the, the election on Thursday. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I kind of think for anybody in this room wondering about what's going to go down in America in a year's time, it's not good news. And um, we know that the sort of the peak of disinformation, as Jonathan will tell you, is just in this ramp up right before the election. It's when things are most heated. It's when it, this is, uh, some story can catch fire. And I think one of the things which is like really alarming to me and why I have been out doing hand-to-hand combat on Twitter in the last 24 hours is because as journalists, we are still incredibly naive about our place in this system. You said to me, I don't know if you meant for the world to hear this, but you said to me that you, uh, a couple of months ago, were, were at a sense of like, like deep pessimism about our ability to understand all of this. Talk to me about why that was and why you've emerged from it. So, well, it's always been very cyclical. It's literally, that last weekend was my three-year anniversary, essentially, of sort of being on this story. And that's meant really, really full-time you know, absolutely doing this at the expense of everything else. I, I really did hit rock bottom about two months ago because over three years, the amazing thing is that uh, as under-resourced as we are in Britain, and we're incredibly under-resourced in, uh, journalistically, nonetheless, we laid out this huge amount of evidence of um, illegality and illicit behaviour in the Brexit referendum we managed to publish that evidence. 
we managed to get it legal in Britain. That's an incredibly difficult task to get it in the newspaper. We even got investigations opened. And then what has happened is that essentially we've been in this situation where the authorities just failed to do their job. And I found this really profoundly depressing because it was this thing of just feeling that journalism just doesn't work anymore. Uh, and the, the, the sort of institutions had in Britain had really, really failed us. And so I sank into a bit of a sharp decline. And I've come back out of it. I'm fighting again now, actually. I kinda, my, my new position is, is, I think, the thing that Masha said, Gesson said earlier, really struck a chord with me. And she said, so much of this stuff isn't hidden, actually. There's so much stuff which is out in the open and in plain sight. But it's our responsibility to tell that story better, to explain what is happening in the, at the time. And that's what I feel like the next challenge is. It's, this is very, you know, it's a very difficult and complicated story to understand, even for people who are really in the thick of it. But finding new ways of, of explaining that in a way that people understand, I think is the sort of the next challenge. And I think that people may not care right now. Maybe they don't understand it enough to care right now, but I think they will. And I think in Britain, the truth of what actually happened during the Brexit referendum and how that very intimately connects to what happened in America with the election of Trump, these two things are absolutely and intimately entwined. And that was one of the first things that I spoke to Jonathan about and that, that way that they're entwined. And so I, I think that people will come to care. Let, let's get back to how they're entwined in a second. But, but I think this point that you just made about our need to find a new way to tell this story, I think is really important and it's something that we've been trying to find a way to articulate. I, I don't think it's an accident that your success here has come um, because you're a feature writer, really, and, and not you didn't you weren't an investigative journalist per se before you sort of started on this path. For those who aren't familiar, talk a little bit about how you came to the Cambridge Analytica story. So I came to the Cambridge Analytica story. I'd been a feature writer for a long time. I'd been writing about tech actually uh, for a long time as a feature writer, and even doing things like I had I had done so. You know, I'd been undercover for a week in an Amazon warehouse. I'd been started out as a tech utopian, and I'd been on that journey of you know gradually seeing the 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 downsides of that. But I came across the particularly the thing around Cambridge Analytica. It was actually I started looking just after the US, just after um, the U.S. election. I started looking at the subject of fake news, and I got into the 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 subject of Google search. I just started doing some Google searches, and one of the first search terms I put in was Jews into the search bar. This was, I think it was about a week after Trump got elected. It was this sort of dark and stormy night, and I tried to make it into a question. So I put, are Jews into the search bar? And Google auto-suggest suggested, are Jews evil? And I just pressed return, and I got an entire page results, which, all of which were, yes, Jews are evil. And then the next box at the bottom of the page made a suggestion for the next search I might want to look for, which was, did the Holocaust happen? So I clicked on, did the Holocaust happen? And I got an entire page of results which said, no, the Holocaust didn't happen. And the very top result was Stormfront, which is a Nazi website. And I found that across a whole range of searches. And so I, I really kind of plunged very, just that first week, deep into this 
sort of um, rabbit hole of what on earth is going on on the internet. And literally the night after I discovered that, I discovered Jonathan, who had just written a, um, a few days earlier, I think. He'd done the sort of first network analysis of fake news uh, websites and how it was a sort of network effect. And essentially it was a, t it was a telephone conversation. I was freaked out. Jonathan was freaked out, and at the end of the conversation, we were just like totally freaked out even more. And and it was really, and he was the first person to say to me, and that oh yeah, and there's companies like Cambridge Analytica which can utilise these uh, fake news networks. And I said, who's Cambridge Analytica? And that was my um, entry point really into this thing, which has spun on and on and on. <laughs> And where were you in that moment on the spectrum of utopian versus tech, skeptic, when you first started this? I'd really, I, I mean, I'd start, I was, I was full on tech utopian in about 2004. And, you know, in that sort of like amazing moment of like seeing the possibilities of all this technology. I went to um, a TED conference then, and I really did have my sort of mind blown by the possibilities. But I'd been on that, I'd been on this downward journey for quite a while. And um, I actually had my kind of funny personal wake up moment was that I, for a story, I had my genome sequenced. And, um, and it was suddenly this realization that I, I, when I went to the sort of symposium where they were giving the results, and somebody asked, Oh, where's it stored? And they said, oh, it's very securely stored in the Amazon cloud. <laughs> and I, I had it some time later, I'd written this story about Amazon's very, very sharp business practices and the ways it was busting all sorts of laws inside its warehouses. And I was like, this is just not a good combination. And at, and at the same time, The Guardian was breaking the Snowden story. And I was involved, actually, in trying to get Snowden to speak at an event. And it was that sudden realisation of... of of that idea of surveillance upon you, the individual, and information, personal information of you, which could be used in sort of ways you don't understand. And that was, that was my, I had a sort of very early moment of paranoia actually around this that did, I think, set off this line of thinking that sort of was the prelude to this really. It's so funny that you mentioned that your height of utopianism was at a TED conference because you last, earlier this year, right, delivered a TED talk that was completely blistering to Facebook and the platform, some of which, some of whom were in the room at the time. If you have not seen it, you have to watch it. We'll get to that in a second. So that's interesting. So this conversation that you had with Jonathan with the first time you've heard of Cambridge Analytica, yes. you didn't bring a lot of sort of preconceptions about how this whole system worked. It, it turned out that a, a, a whistleblower in this case was sort of key to telling this story. Um, Talk about how how you found that person and how how you went about convincing him to come forward. Yeah, so it kind of starts. Early. I mean, what was so interesting about that Google writing that Google story was I, I I really felt oh my god when I when I published this thing I thought the people are going to be appalled you know we're going to want uh, you know how this cannot go on of course Google must fix this and essentially this thing of what i what the pattern which began then and has repeated and repeated and repeated is that the platforms refuse to comment they say there's no problem then they go away and tinker a little bit with the results and meantime the situation continues and we're seeing this exactly right now with facebook with this with this issue of misinformation in political ads 
and outrage doesn't work. And, and I was sort of like, my normal practice was that you write a, you know, you plunge into a stop topic, you write a feature and you move on to the next topic. And, uh, and, and it did cause outrage and it did go viral and it got followed up everywhere, but the results were still out there. And I was like, this is not okay. And so I carried on writing about it and I wrote about it for the next sort of four, five, six weeks, I think, until, you know, Google eventually um, tried to, they, they, they ended up sending me this legal letter on Christmas Eve. And it took two months, I think it was, and then eventually, eventually they did change those results. But the, 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 one of the things is, is that, it's again, it goes back to this thing of that you don't have to go looking Actually, that story was out there. The story of how Facebook is spreading misinformation right now is out there. But it's somehow it's finding that different way of, of getting that story over was the thing that, that I sort of realized was the challenge. And in the Google case, what I did was I took out a Google... I, got a Go I was like, ha-ha, I know I can get the, the result to the top of the search. And I took out an ad. I took out a Google ad. And so I had an ad but above the searches saying, yes, the Holocaust did happen. And <laughs> click, click this website, Wikipedia, for actual like proper information. But then, and so it's the same thing weirdly with the Cambridge Analytica story. Actually, so many of the facts were already out there. The story was actually originally broken about how they'd harvested the Facebook data and how they were using it for political uh, purposes by a colleague of mine, Harry Fox Davis, in December 2015. And then I was writing about, I started writing about it in 2017. A Swiss journalist, Hannes Grasseger, was writing about it. Um, I've, terrible, I've forgotten his name. A journalist for The Intercept was writing it, but they just ignored it. Facebook, they wouldn't even acknowledge there were, that th this had happened. They wouldn't give any comment. So it was, it was this thing about, you know, well, how on earth do I make people pay attention and care? And that, and that was when I started looking for ex-employees. And then when I found, it was, like, it, was it was already about five, six months in that I found Christopher Wiley, the guy with the pink hair who became the whistleblower. And, but as soon as I had this first conversation with him, I, I just was sort of like, oh my God, this can really blow it open in a way which I haven't been able to do up till now. And how much time passed between your first contact with him and when the piece was published? A year, practically. A year. Um, so uh, let's go then to, to Brexit and Trump and, and more generally what you see, having, having watched the disinformation campaign around Brexit, having watched the disinformation campaign happening in the last few days um, for this election, um, it's, sort, it, do you, it's sort of a canary in the coal mine for what yeah. we're going to be experiencing here, right? Yeah, ab absolutely, absolutely. And we know that, so we know that in 2016, they absolutely were learning from each other in different ways. And we know that the same company, Cambridge Analytica, was involved in both. We know that Cambridge Analytica, the, the zombie son of, is involved in 2020 already. So two data scientists from the company, now it's, it's now defunct, but they're working with Brad Pascale again on 2020, and we the know Trump campaign manager. and the Trump Trump campaign manager. And in Britain, I've been trying to get this story. I've, 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 I, I'm not actually going to get it. I don't think into the newspaper in time. But we know that in Britain that there's they re, they reassembled Vote Leave Two, 
and they reassembled much of the team. And um, that you know, there's a secret data operation. We know that data is at the is at the heart of modern political campaigning. It's it's so vital, and but it's invisible to us in real time. And so, although you know, it's two days ahead of our election in Britain. We know there's all sorts of things going on, but we've got absolutely no access to it. And it's sort of it's this weird sensation, actually, I, I, for me at the moment, because having spent this sort of three years forensically trying to um, disentangle what happened in that election, which we know was really perverted and subverted and had a whole host of illegal activities around it, it's just sort of frustrating that we're sitting here and... <laughs> There's stuff happening all over again, and we don't know what it is. And you're still fighting litigation around that. I am. There's a particular. There's a particular character who um, has been a very key uh, person in this story right from the the very beginning. And just uh, like Voldemort, we do not. Yeah, no, we can. He's called Aaron Banks, and he's suing me. I was in court with him last week, and. Um, it's really, really. I mean, it's uh, all of this. All of the the discussion around the First Amendment and free speech is is really interesting. But in in Britain, we don't have that, and the you know the ability for for well funded uh, millionaires to take action against uh, journalists and against news organisations is really, really chilling. And we've had it all the way along. We had huge legal threats from Cambridge Analytica. We had legal threats from Facebook, literally the day before publication. We have, I mean, I mean I, it's sort of absurd. I've had six legal letters in the last week from, um, related to two different stories. I mean, it's, it's, it's that the, as a sort of, as a cost of doing business of journalism in Britain, it's really, really severe. And what Aaron Banks has done with me is that I've been publishing these stories about him for three years in the Guardian and Observer, but he's decided to come after me as an individual. So he's, he's coming after me for a line that I said in the TED talk. And um, TED has lots of money. He could go after them. But he's not. He's coming after me as an individual. And it is just, you know, it's another, it's, a, it's just threatening, intimidatory behavior. And, um, but we really need sort of solidarity to stand up to this, I think. And in part, your, your crowdfunding um, support for that, right? Yeah, so that's, that has been, I mean, that, that, that has been one of the sort of uplifting bits about this story is that as much as sort of threats and intimidation and abuse, you, re- it, you do, you know, have been very, very lucky in having this sort of support and um, backing of, you know, people who just can see it for what it is, can see bullying when, it, when it's in their face. Mm. So you heard the discussion in the first panel, especially about um, what, how should we, how should journalists, let's think now about Trump 2020. Um, how should reporters in the U.S. be thinking about writing about these campaigns, which we know are coming or that are here? Um, what kind of tools should they have that they don't have? Based on your experience with these, with these last two campaigns, what, what do you tell people? I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things which there are f- people who are far more expert than me, but I do not understand how it is acceptable <laughs> that Facebook is facilitating mass 
racism. I just, I don't understand why that story hasn't been told better. A white billionaire is suppressing black votes in this country. I just, I, that is a scandal. I mean, that is the, I just, I, 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 and, and so it comes back to this, for me, it comes back to this thing of connecting readers, people, everybody with the sort of stories. Like that point you just made, but what else? What are, what are these basics that you're talking about? You know, the, the sort of, the people here at Lister Institution are doing this like really critical, fascin- you know, brilliant research, but it has to translate into um, mass, into the sort of mass medium. And I don't think that's happened yet. And I certainly see it. So, for example, I can give the example of Britain again. So, you know, there's been three years of research around how disinformation works, how these networks work, what is happening around on Twitter and Facebook to automate this, you know, fake consensus. But at the same time, even the people who should know this stuff, who should be aware of it, journalists, are completely innocent and naive and actually right in the middle of it. And I think, and that's what I'm sort of saying, if we don't get it, if we haven't actually got our shit together and figured out a better way of dealing with this, then I don't think that we can expect anybody else to have yet. What is the difference in the approach to, let's say, Facebook and their culpability for this? What what is the difference you see in Britain versus here, even just culturally, in the way that, that we think about these tech companies? I mean, it's, it's the thing about um, America, I think, with the tech companies is that you sort of bear responsibility for the entire world because you are the only place which is that you've got jurisdiction in a way which we don't have. And you actually, your news organisations have the ear and are taken notice of in a way which the rest of the world is not. And, you know, it's absolutely stunning to me that we allow Facebook anywhere near our election when they are a foreign company which has shown itself to be completely beyond the reach of British law. You know, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg has refused repeatedly to come to Britain and to give answers to this committee which has been, you know, asking questions around this. And they had this, and they have this grand international committee, it's 12 representatives from 12 parliaments, 12 different countries, represents more than half a billion people, and Facebook do not show up. And um, why on earth are we accepting this? You know, this is, this is, this is, a, this is in itself a form of foreign, foreign interference. And so that's why I kind of... And it, I, went to, I went to this conference two weekends ago, and I made a point of going. It was, the, it was a conference for Arabic investigative journalists. Now, these people are working in these incredibly difficult circumstances, and they're right on the front line of disinformation techniques and are really personally in danger. And they haven't got a chance of um, addressing these things with the tech companies. They don't even get their... You know, they, they, they're not going to get a response from Silicon Valley. And so that's where it's sort of their solidarity. I feel there is, there is a real moral and ethical responsibility actually in America to be bringing up these subjects as well and because they're affecting they are affecting all of us around the world and I'm so sorry as long as, as if you hadn't got enough to deal with your own uh, issues you've also got 
to deal with everybody else's too. Sorry about that. What is your expectation of, especially again, Facebook, what their strategy is to sort of navigate through this moment they're in, in terms of the pressure both in Britain and the congressional pressure in the US? Do you just see it as a waiting game where they're just trying to wait this out? Or do they have any, have you seen any, any real sense of them engaging in this in a real way? I mean, the thing I find so fascinating about, they are just, they're in, for, for, I mean, Silicon Valley is in its own filter bubble. So at some level, they are being in, enabled in this because it, it, it hasn't yet become uncomfortable for them. They're not carrying around the shame which they should have of their role in the Myanmar genocide. You know, and there's a sort of massive cognitive dissonance, I think, there must be when they can see, they must be able to see at some level the effects of this technology that they've created. And yet, because they're sort of reinforcing each other in their own community, they're just continuing to ignore that. And I think they have to be made uncomfortable. I think the thing around racism, the way that the idea that Facebook um, and, and the, uh, Google and Twitter are going to be used again to exploit... Um, to, to, to facilitate racism in another American election, to suppress votes, there should be a sort of some sense of being able to shame them, I think, really, around that. I just, um, and that's, again, as I say, is where I feel it's like on us as journalists to be telling that story better. I don't think, I just don't think we've done our jobs yet. Carol, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. So you can read a profile of Carol in the latest issue of CJR, which is just out and is available at, at bookstores and at CJR.org, as well as everything else going on on our website, on our daily newsletter, The Media Today, and on social media. We have one more podcast coming next week, which is going to be about the stories that people have missed over the last year. So come back for that, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>